Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Great to see everybody. Hey, and welcome to those of you watching online. Thank you. I know this summer we have people all over the country uh, traveling, visiting folks. So wherever you're at, uh, thank you so much for engaging and tuning in and joining these uh, beautiful people today. Uh, it's hard to believe that the summer is uh, quickly coming to an end. It seems strange to say that uh, in June, but with kids going back to school mid-August and teachers going back a week earlier, uh, the summer is, is quickly coming to a close. Hey, but one other thing, don't forget that next Sunday night, uh, our church is all, we're all going to a River Dogs game, a little baseball game, and uh, we, we've kind of thought, well, maybe, you know, 100 people or so will sign up for this. No, 600 of you signed up for it, so uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, just purchase some tickets. We, 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 we're giving away all the free tickets we're giving away now, um, but uh, you, can, you can still join us next Sunday night, 5 o'clock. Just go online and buy some uh, River Dog tickets to join us, but if you've got a Coastal shirt, make sure you wear it, because uh, we're going to take over the Riverdog Stadium. Uh, but today, as Scott said, we are kicking off uh, another uh, favorite, I think so at least, favorite summer sermon series tradition uh, here at Coastal. It's called Summer Reading. And uh, so let me explain a little bit about the series for those of you who are fairly new to our church, kind of how it works. So earlier in the year, pastors and staff here at Coastal, we picked seven books that we think are worth reading. And uh, so we provide the book list early on. We even provided you know, some of those books for you to purchase early on, limited number of those. And then we just encourage you over the summer to pick them up and uh, to start reading. Now, obviously, we are not going to be preaching from the books themselves. Each week, we're just using the subject matter uh, from that week's book as the subject matter for that Sunday sermon. And then we're gonna do what we always do here at Coastal. Uh, we're gonna dig into God's word and we're gonna point people to Jesus. Now, this year's uh, series is a little bit different from years past. Now, typically, we would choose fairly current, recent um, Christian living books. Uh, many of them, um, you know, they're, they're kind of on the bestsellers list for that year or whatnot. But uh, this year's books are not fairly current at all. In fact, they're just the opposite. Uh, many of them have been around for a very long time. They are what you might call uh, Christian classics. Christian classics, and they're really not light reading. But for thousands and thousands of believers around the world, most of these books have been somewhat foundational uh, in shaping their faith. So I hope that you're gonna pick up one or two or all of the books and, uh, and read them because after all, leaders are what? Readers. Raise your hand if you consider yourself to be a reader. You're a reader. You enjoy reading. Raise your hand if you made a promise after high school that you would never crack open a book and you have kept that promise. Okay, a surprising number of you. So um, let's get started. Today's book uh, is Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of the great intellectual giants of the 20th century and one of the most influential writers of his day, having, having written over 30 books that still attract Thousands and thousands of new readers every year. And this particular book today, Mere Christianity, is one of the most popular introductions to Christianity ever written. Sold millions of copies worldwide. And countless people credit this particular book as kind of the tipping point uh, that led them to belief in God and faith in Christ. 
Now, you might not know this, but the book itself was actually adapted from a series of British radio talks that Lewis gave uh, between 1941 and 1944 during World War II, in his own words, to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. Now, because of the rather broad nature of this book, there are a lot of different you know, directions that I could go in today with this message. But I wanna do something just a little bit different today, if you'll let me. Well, it doesn't matter if you let me know, I'm gonna do it anyway. But, um, but today's message is going to be a little bit more philosophical in nature. And, and, but I think there's going to be a great benefit today for this message. For those of you who are, are been believers for a long time, and, but also for those of you who might consider yourselves uh, to be seekers. Um, I want to talk today about the reasons for believing in the existence of God. Okay? Um, and that's exactly where C.S. Lewis begins in, in his book. And he mainly focuses on one particular argument for believing in the, in the existence of God, but I wanna give you four today. I wanna give you four, uh, I would say these are the four classic arguments that have stood the test of time throughout history for believing that there is a God. Now, to kind of set this up a little bit here this morning, how is it that we as human beings come to believe that anything is either reasonable or unreasonable, okay, true or false. Well, what do we do? We compile evidence, uh, we consider the evidence carefully, and then finally we make a decision based on the weight of evidence. We, we use our minds. Now, of course, all of us understand that seldom, if ever in life, is anything knowable with absolute certainty, Okay, life just doesn't work that way. You know, even at a trial, uh, the judge tells the jurors that they are to assess whether or not the prosecuting attorney presented enough evidence to convince them beyond what point? What do we call it? Beyond a reasonable doubt, right. So if you think about it, in, in almost every area of life, we, we make decisions that way. We do, we, we make decisions on, uh, based on high probability as opposed to absolute certainty. For example, when you board an airplane today, you don't know with absolute certainty that when it leaves Charleston, it will indeed land at your desired destination. We're even less sure about the luggage, right? I mean, you know. But there is, in our minds, a high probability, right? A sufficient reason to believe. And so we board the plane. You're not absolutely certain that the server at the restaurant that you're going to go today after church won't spit in your food. Okay, I just wanted to give you something to think about today during lunch, okay? No, um, but all of us, we learn, we learn to live with that, right? We learn to live with a certain measure of, of faith. And we grow accustomed to being reasonable, thinking people. We weigh the evidence, we consider the data, and then finally we make decisions based on high probability, but we still step out in faith. So that's what I'm asking you to do today. So, let's begin with the first argument uh, for the existence of God. This is typically called the cosmological argument. 
cosmological. Now, don't let that word scare you. Uh, cosmological basically comes from two Greek words, logos, which means, well, it has many meanings, meanings, one of which is reason, and then cosmos, of course, means the world. So you put those two together, and cosmological simply refers to the reason for the world. Now, there, there are several different variations of this argument. The one I'm gonna put forward today really has three uh, notions to it, three main ideas to it. So here's the first one. When you, you look outside, okay, when you look outside, you see some things that actually exist, right? You got trees, you got grass, you got water, clouds, stars, planets, so the first idea, the cosmological argument for the existence of God wants to ask this question. Why do these things exist? Why do they exist? What's the, what's the purpose uh, for their, their existence? Uh, what's the explanation? Now, stay with me for just a moment. Suppose that nothing existed. Okay, so just... Suppose for a moment that nothing existed. Would nothingness require an explanation? Now, I know some of you are thinking, man, Pastor Chris, you've just entered the twilight zone, right? This is way too deep for me on uh, you know, Sunday morning. No, nothingness would not require an explanation. But the split second that something exists, anything exists, you've got to ask, what is the sufficient reason to explain its existence. Now, the second notion, the second idea in the cosmological argument is that when we observe all the stuff that does exist, we observe that it's all contingent. Contingent, which simply means that it seems to depend on something else for its existence. In and of itself, it, it all lacks self-sufficiency. The trees need air, the grass need water, they both need the sun, animals need food. In other words, nothing that we see that exists, nothing that we observe seems to be self-caused or self-reliant. In fact, really quickly, we easily conclude that when we look at all the stuff that exists, and again, thinking scientific people say that at a point in time, it did not exist. And that at any point in time in the future, it probably won't continue to exist. Everything in existence seems to be fragile and fading. Now, this leads to the third question, or the third notion, the third idea. What's the explanation behind all this dependent, contingent stuff that exists? What's the explanation? Now again, I know this is way more philosophical than we usually get, but I think it's important, and I want you to stretch your minds just for a bit this morning. Let's pretend that today I've got this ginormous circle up here, and for lack of an illustration, let's just say maybe it's just a big hula hoop, okay? A big hula hoop. Now, let's pretend that everything that exists is found, everything in the universe that exists is located inside this circle, this giant hula hoop. Now we've already concluded that everything that exists is all contingent. It depends on something else for its existence. In fact, it's all slowly heading toward non-existence. So the big question is, 
What caused all the contingent stuff to exist in the first place? Now, keep that circle that you've got in your mind. So the answer has got to lie in one of two places. The ultimate cause of everything inside the circle must either be located inside the circle itself or outside the circle. Now, let's be thinking reasonable people. What makes most sense? Now, if everything inside the circle is, as we've already said, contingent and dependent and transitory and fading, how rational is it to locate the ultimate cause of everything inside the circle? I mean, doesn't a thinking person have to conclude that the explanation for all that exists inside the circle must lie where? Where? Outside the circle. You guys are so smart. Now, by definition then, whatever is outside the circle must be what? Non-contingent, non-dependent. It must be uncaused, self-reliant, eternal, unlimited, all-powerful. And friends, those are the kinds of adjectives that come dangerously close to a working definition of God. Psalm 19.1 puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Be reasonable. That's all I'm asking today. So let's move to the second classic argument for the existence of God. It's known as the teleological argument. Say that really fast, teleological, okay? I've been practicing that all week, teleological. Um, now don't, worth, don't let that word scare you either because it really just points to the design that we see in the world. So it asks the question of thinking people, you know, who is responsible for all of the symmetry that we see in the world, for all of the coordination of all of the intricacies that, that we see in the world. Philosopher William Paley once wrote, there simply cannot be a design without a what? A designer. It makes no sense. There cannot be a design without a designer. So the teleological argument challenges the familiar theory that everything that we see around us just came into existence by sheer chance. Now, most of you probably know that for centuries, mankind looked at the complexities and the wonders of the world and simply assumed that there was a master designer behind it all. And that belief was basically unchallenged until the 18th century's age of reason when scientists began postulating that the origins of the universe were scientifically explainable. Now, in vogue today, of course, is the Big Bang Theory, not the television show, but the, uh, the theory uh, which holds that a chance collision of floating gases set in motion a random series of events that over billions and billions of years finally brought us to where we are today. Now I ask you, how reasonable is that theory? Now, keep in mind that no scientist can adequately explain where the mysterious gases came from in the first place. And many scientists blush in embarrassment at the mathematical probabilities of a chance collision of gases eventually producing even a single structured molecule, let alone a process as complex as photosynthesis or a phenomena as breathtaking as 
an eagle in flight. Now again, I'm not a scientist, okay? I, I don't claim to be one. But the teleological argument basically says that the random chance explanation for everything that you see is highly unlikely. And it doesn't pass the honest test of reason. You know, whenever, wherever there is purpose and order and design, reasonable people come to the conclusion that someone was responsible for it. So here's my challenge for you today. You know, when you're out at lunch thinking whether or not this person has spit in my food, no. Um, I want you to think about your computer, your laptop, your MacBook Pro, you know, whatever you've got. Think about your computer, maybe even your cell phone. And I want you to think about all the parts that make up that computer, that technological device, you know, the tiny circuits, the, the chip, the switches, the connectors, all of it. And ask yourself this question. Was your computer, was your phone designed by an intelligent being or was it the, random, was it the result of a random explosion in a metal factory? Okay. Now, if the evidence falls on the side of an intelligent designer, then all I'm saying is that you have a basic appreciation for the teleological argument for the existence of God, who alone can account for the marvel and the miracles that we see all around us every day. I mean, sheer chance cannot produce what we see. Reasonable, think re reasonable thinking people cannot hold that position. Charles Darwin, in fact, the kingpin of evolutionary theory in a chapter titled Difficulties with the Theory from his Origin of Species book says, and I quote, to suppose that the human eye with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection, I freely confess, seems absurd in the highest degree. Only an intelligent designer could have produced the human eye or the navigation system of a homing pigeon or the spinning ability of a spider. And it's been said countless times by thinking people, much more faith is required to attribute the wonders of our world to a chance collision of floating gases than to accept the existence of an eternal, intelligent, all-powerful designer God. Listen, the next time you hold a baby in your arms, can you really buy the line that something that magnificent and that complex that we don't even know, you know, all the ins and outs of the human brain and everything that goes along with it is the result of a cosmic accident? Romans 1, 19 and 20 puts it this way. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. It's plainly seen. Now, we come to the third argument. This one is called the moral argument. 
for the existence of God, the moral argument. So this argument asks this question. How do you account for the fact that in human beings worldwide, all through history, regardless of what continent, culture, or language, there is this kind of moral code stamped on the hearts of humanity that brings with it a sense of, uh, an inner sense of oughtness, uh, of right and wrong to bear on the lives of people. How do you explain this moral code? I mean, if human beings simply evolve from primeval gases, if we are simply grown-up germs or recent improvement of the ape, how do you account for the fact that in almost every single culture in the world, truth-telling is preferred over lying, kindness over violence, loyalty over backstabbing, love over hate, justice over injustice? Why is that? Who accounts for that? Where did that moral code come from? How do you explain it? I mean, are gases or germs or genes capable of creating a moral code of values in people worldwide, one that is remarkably consistent even though billions of people existed and have been separated by oceans and continents? Where did that come from? Who put it there? You know, if it didn't come from God, then how do you explain it? So C.S. Lewis uh, explains the moral argument in this book, Mere Christianity. And he does so with such clarity and thoughtfulness that thousands of people have come to believe in God by a careful study of this single book. Romans 2.15. They demonstrate that God's law is written where? In their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. In other words, this, this moral code in all humanity is written on the hearts of men and women from God. So finally, let me, let me touch on one more argument, and that is the argument from religious experience religious experience. Now, admittedly, you know, this argument in and of itself is far from being conclusive, but Christian experiences such as feeling the presence of God, receiving guidance from God, strength from God, unexplained healings, you know, they all have to be taken very seriously just as evidence for the existence of God, provided that the person making the claim is widely considered to be a trustworthy and truthful person. Now, what I'm driving at today is, is that hundreds of millions of intelligent, well-adjusted, non-marijuana-smoking people, okay, all over the world, including presidents and chief justices and scientists and sociologists and economists, as well as honorable butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. Okay, in other words, just regular people like you and me. They all claim that they have experienced the love and the presence of God. And I don't think that should be taken lightly. Now, nobody is arguing the fact that occasionally a delusive or deceitful person doesn't manufacture religious experiences for their own power and their own personal gain. But that shouldn't completely discount the testimony of millions 
of highly intelligent people who bear witness to the experience of God in their everyday life. In fact, I believe that I could ask person after person here in this room to come up here today and bear witness to this, to share your testimony, to give credible you know, testimony to the fact that God has been real in your life. Maybe it was the death of a loved one, the div- a divorce that you went through, some tragedy that you experienced. But the only thing that made that whole ordeal survivable was that God came near. He comforted you. He gave you his support, his consoling presence, that even in the darkest night of your soul, God came near and he brought a supernatural kind of comfort. And no, you're not making it up. You're not delusive, you're you're not hallucinating, it was real. And for what it's worth, I can give similar kind of witness. I mean, I can personally describe scores of times in my own life, over the course of my life, when the presence of God was so real and so unmistakable that if somebody had come up to me right afterwards and asked me, hey, Chris, is there a God? I could have looked them in the eye immediately afterwards and said, you better believe there is. I know it. I just talked with him. He came near. He has touched my life. You see, the religious experience argument says, how do you account for that? How do you account for the fact that hundreds of millions of people who are not hallucinating, who are not lying, who are not delusive types of people, and you know, many of whom gave their lives for this, How is it that so many people all around the world are experiencing God? I mean, are hundreds of millions of Christians just hallucinating? Are they lying? Is it a a well-organized conspiracy? And for what purpose? You see, the, the argument from religious experience simply asks, okay, look, when you carefully consider the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the argument from the moral code within all human beings, and then you simply tack on the end of those arguments the fact that millions of intelligent people are claiming to regularly talk with a God, and you put all that on the scales of judgment. You are going to have to come up to a point, come to a point where you make up your mind. I mean, Every jury finally has to come to the point where they deliver a verdict. You're going to have to ask yourself honestly, what caused all of the contingent beings inside the circle? Who designed the wonders of this world? Why the universal sense of right and wrong in people? And how is it that millions upon millions of people claim to talk to and feel loved by God? How do you explain all of that apart from acknowledging the obvious? Friends, there is a God an eternal, all-powerful creator God, a master designer of the wonders of this world, including me and you, author of the moral code that has been stamped on the hearts of human beings, yours and mine, and capable of regularly connecting with and conversing with his creation like you and me. And if the truth were further known today, listen to me, 
That living, active, all-powerful, loving God who is there has attempted many, many times to contact every single person on this planet, including you. Honest people can all remember a late night, ceiling staring question. Ceiling staring session when God came near to you and said, Come on. You know that I'm real. Stop pretending that I'm not. Stop pretending that you don't need me in your life. Stop pretending that I don't exist. Find out who I really am and what I'm up to in this world. Find out what I could do in your life. Open up your mind. Open up your heart. You see, every person in this place can remember a visit from God sometime in your life's journey. The question is, How did you respond? What action did you take? You see, the evidence for the existence of God, it's impressive. You know, as a a believer, you don't have to shrink back from anyone. Our faith is not on sinking sand. It is on the rock-solid ground. There is certainly enough evidence to bring us all beyond the point of reasonable doubt. And so I want to say to all of you here today who might consider yourself to be a seeker. I mean, in other words, you know, you're just still trying to figure all this out. Listen to me. Yes, weigh the evidence. Look at it honestly, reasonably. Think about all the things that you've heard today very carefully, very honestly, and then when... Not if, when God visits you next time. And he will. When he visits you to establish a relationship with you, contact with you. In fact, why do you think you're here today? Not by accident. When he reaches out to you because of his great love for you. Simply say to him, okay, I know that you're real. Deep down, I've known it all along. And feel the freedom to say, God, would you make yourself more known to me? Help me to understand who you are. Help me to better understand your plan and who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross. Help me to put this whole thing together in my mind so that I can understand, so that I can take next steps very soon. And what I'm saying, and what the Bible says, by the way, that if you do that, those of you who will honestly and diligently seek after God. The Bible says you will find him. You will find him. You will find him through Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will adopt you into his forever family. He will will begin in you a whole new life, a new life that will take you from this life on to the next and into eternity. Jeremiah 29, 11 and 13 puts it this way. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, and so often, we'll just stop right there with that, won't we? And we're just thinking about the here and the now. But listen to the next verses. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Listen, God is here. He is real. He is the all-powerful designer. He he has stamped a moral code. You know in your heart that the even existence of right and wrong tells you that there is a God. Look all around you. All of what you see is not by sheer chance or accident. There is a God and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And some of you know it. Some of you have been toying with that fact and you've heard about Jesus. You've been coming to this church. You've heard the good news of the gospel that there is a problem in your own heart and it's sin. You can't live up to your own standards. You know, not, not even talking about a holy God, let alone a holy God. But God knew that and in his great love, he provided a way. It's Jesus. It's his son. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross to pay for your sin and mine. And if you will simply place your faith in him, your trust in him or him alone, you can be adopted into his family today. Your sin slate can be wiped clean. You will be forgiven and you will have a home in heaven forever. You can have that today. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your great love for humanity. God, I thank you for all of the beauty of this world, the mystery, the, the things that we don't understand, the things that, you know, that, that we see that we take for granted, the, the, your creation. And yet, God, we see you there, your divine nature, your power. Um, thank you for all of it. And Father, thank you that stamped on human hearts is this, this moral code, this sense of right and wrong. It's not something we just came up with. It's, it's from you. Listen, if you're here today and you are ready to embrace a relationship with this, this God, this loving, holy creator God, come home now. You know, maybe, maybe your next step is just to pray that seeker's prayer. God, make yourself more known to me. Reveal yourself to me. God, help me to figure out Jesus and his plan for me. But for those of you who are here today and you've heard that good news, you've experienced it, you've seen it, listen, come home now. Just pour your heart out to him in a prayer. He knows your heart. He is the only one who can see it. Father, forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus. Today, I place my faith and my trust in him. I believe in who he is, that he is your son, that he went to the cross, he rose from the dead, and he is alive. And today, I put my faith and trust in him. Thank you, Father. We love you and we pray these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.